Welcome to episode 33 of the Grassroots Guy podcast with me, your host, Harry Purdy. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome on my first fully-fledged international footballer, ex-Jamaican international. He's made over 250 appearances for Yeovil Town Football Club and is just a sound guy. Nathan Smith, how you doing, mate? You okay? How are you, you, mate? Thanks for having me, Giza. You're more than welcome. Good. You're more than welcome. Um, Mate, we'll start off the same as I do with every guest, no matter what their background is, um, all that sort of stuff. Your first memories of sport, when were they and what were they? Of sport on a whole? Yeah. Um, my first memories of sport were definitely, well, it, it, it's two things hit me straight away. One, you know, karate when I got my black belt and two, playing on the streets, football with me and my friends, my close friends playing Wembley doubles. Amazing. So interestingly then, you, you said you were a black belt in karate. Was that an, an early interest from you as a youngster? Yeah, this was early. This was, you know, early primary school. Um, I think I, got, I don't know, I think I got a black belt when I was 10, if I'm correct, around that kind of age wow. there. But um, yeah, so it was, that was a, an early thing. It was an early interest. A lot of it was, again, my mum, my mum, like, she liked a lot of um, Kung Fu movies, so she wanted someone to, you know, be that. <laughs> and... Yeah, but then obviously after a while, I got when I got my black, I was like, I said, you know what, mum, I just want to go more in towards football. And she wanted me to get my first Dan, but I said, nah, mum, I'm done. You know what I mean? I want to go more towards um, the football route. So yeah, that, that was the uh, the early one. And then Wembley memories, uh, you, you were saying, was that like in the street or was that down a local park? What sort of facilities and stuff did you and your friends have? That was just a road that was blocked off. You know, there were caravans blocking off the road because it couldn't go any further anyway. And then we were just using the car park gate, you know, and then, yeah, we were just using that gate as the goal. And that's it. We were just going at it. Wembley doubles, Wembley singles. And, and that was it, boy. You used to come out on top. You must have, you must have won a few of those uh, rounds with your mates, man. Do you know what? It was always, sometimes I would come out on top and sometimes I wouldn't. Do you know what I mean? Like my cousin used to come around as well. We used to play there as well. And to meet all of us and like, it was just so much fun memories because it's like me, you know, my fruit, my two neighbors who were, um, I love them to, to pieces, you know, they were you know, half Irish, half Greek. We used to either play Monopoly or play Wembley doubles and my cousin would come around and our next door neighbor. And then even his sister would get involved as well. So it was always good seeing her get involved in it as well, because listen, she used to bully up some of the lads, mate, at the same time. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was good times, man. Good times. So tell us about your um, upbringing then, Nath. Where, where, were you, where are you originally from? Um, what was your childhood like? How was school? And when did you start making it into, like, the school teams? Um, so, born um, in North London and spent a lot of time in Edmonton, early parts. I spent a lot of time with my grands as well. Um, then obviously moved to, to Wood Green at some point. So I went to St. Michael's School, then on to Broomfield School as well. And um, yeah, just, so I just used to just like playing football in the streets. Again, like I said, with a, with a man then. And um, yeah, so the earliest points I remember from football, what, footballing wise, 
would have been like clearly like year seven, year seven, you know, we started to take more, you know, footballing, you know, sessions in school and, you know, going into the school team. I was known very much for my pace at the time. And well, I was known very much for my pace in primary school as well, you know, and it even rings back to me now. My one, one brother from primary school said to me, you ain't ever going to make it because all you do is kick and run. And kick and run done me very well, I must say. Yeah. I mean, was that was that something that you like relied on as a youngster then in regards to like your impact on the game of football as such was you sort of found one route, one trick, if you like, that would work. So you just relied on that, was it? Well, not really, no, because them times there, you don't even really, I don't think you even really know what your, your one trick is. You're just, you're just running down the pitch, yeah. isn't it? You're just trying to enjoy it, just trying to take on everyone. You may not even know that you, you've got a one trick, but to me, in my head, I'm thinking Ronaldinho, stepovers, Ronaldo, stepovers, you know, yeah. all of these things. So you feel like you're probably doing more than what someone else may see, you know? So for me, it was just expression, you know, being able to just take people on and gather an enjoyment from, from, from that way, yeah. Amazing. You mentioned uh, Ronaldo, you mentioned Ronaldinho. Uh, two questions then. Did you have a team that you followed when you were growing up? I mean, being from North London, potentially there's a couple of big ones around you. But um, second question, when you were growing up, who were your idols in regards to f- sport and football? So a team growing up was Manchester United, funny enough. Oh, um, no way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, cousin, my cousin Steve used to always, um, he was a Man United fan. And I always used to always look, look up to him. So... You know what it's like, you're looking up to your older cousin and he's supporting one team and, you know, then I became a, a United supporter those times there. Um, what was the other question again? People that you admired. Yeah, so, um, again, players that I admired was, yeah, like the Ronaldo, like the, or the, the big run, you know, Brazilian Ronaldo, yeah. the Ronaldinho's, you know, they just brought something different to the game. I used to appreciate, you know, the Dwight York and Cole Cups, you know, they were something powerful for us because, you know, especially like, you know, there was like two black men that were just doing bits and they would just always seem happy and enjoying things. You know, he looked at Ronaldinho and he just always looked happy. He could miss an open goal and be smiling. Now, I don't know if he was actually happy or not, but he just looked happy like he was enjoying it. So, you know, those kind of players, a lot of the time we did always, you know, look up to in that essence and, you know, just try to emulate certain things from them. Amazing. Yeah. JJ Okocha and all these little trickery, tricky man them. And yeah. So you say, obviously, Ronaldinho uh, always used to look happy. Would you say that that's something that you tried to take into your career? Like when you got into like the, the higher realms of football where you got to the football league with Yeovil, Chesterfield, winning the league with Chesterfield. Did you always try and take that emulation of seeing JJ Okocha always looking happy, Ronaldinho always looking happy into your persona on the pitch and within the team? Yeah, you know, at times you do try it. But then I felt like sometimes within the English culture at times, it's like, bruv, you're smiling after something's gone wrong. Like, you're not taking football serious. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, you're in a catch-22, especially when you're trying to gain an understanding of things per se, you know, because I always say no one doesn't ever really teach you how to, like, you know, process your emotions growing up. So, you know, that could have been, like, Ronaldinho's way of how he processed things himself. So, you know, me possibly trying to do that, 
and try to learn a different way to, you know, you know, if you miss, how can I, if I've done something wrong, how can I, you know, bring it back? How can I home it back in? How can I get back onto that path? But yeah, at times it felt like if you smiled when something went wrong, you weren't taking the game serious or you were, you know, you wasn't, your application wasn't serious. So yeah, so I had the little fleeting moments, you know, where you try certain things and, you know, again, like idols you look up to, you try little bits of buzz from them and see what works with you. And yeah. Brilliant. And then, so you probably got a little bit more of a different uh, rise, if you like, to some of the pro footballers that I've spoken to already that have dropped out of top academies, et cetera, et cetera. When was it that you started making waves, making moves in the football scene in your area? And when was the first time anybody um, of any stature sort of got in touch with you and asked you to come along? Um, so the earliest memories I have, I remember playing over at Amonia and I'm not sure how old I was. That might have just been, that might have been early primary school or late primary school. And I remember the manager over there was Chris and he used to always want me to come over there, which was, it was nice to be over there, you know? Um, then as time went on, I then over, I went over to Enfield, Enfield FC, just like playing a few games over there with like the youth team. Well, I mean, well before the youth team, should I say, um, managers over there was, was Glenn and Michael. So there's a few of us as friends that was over at that team as well. And then we ended up getting into the, the youth team, which I think was managed by a guy called Paul. And, you know, that's when like, the steps started to, you know, take up a bit more, um, yeah, and just different aspects of it started to change, just little by little, not massively, but just, you know, like little by little. And yeah, so that's where like the, the, the rising of it, of it kind of began. Then obviously then the other non-league clubs started changing in, you know, you had the Wolven Forests go over there, um, Potter's Bar went over there. And that's where obviously where I met Steve Brown. Yeah, talk to us about the like aspects that started to change for you then. Was it a development within your game that you managed to achieve even without, obviously, the elite coaching? Because, I mean, to start at Enfield, as you say, as a youngster, and then be included, obviously, the non-league side, such as Potter's Bar, to then be picked up by Yeovil, there must have been a drastic change in yourself and the way that you played football to be able to go and achieve that? Do you know what? Like, it's, it's always interesting when you say that because I don't know in the essence like what I did different apart from, if I'll be honest, it was my application in the terms of how often I was training. So I was fine everywhere and I was trained. I was trained literally Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday because over at New River, they used to have... Um, a soccer scene session by kicks that I think was put on by Spurs. So over there you had the likes of Richard Alicott, um, Poet was over there, some people know as Poet's Corner online, and they would take some of the sessions. So it was like Monday would be over there. Tuesday, you quickly go there for an hour before we went over to Wolven Forest, per se. You know, me, me and my friend Ada would be jumping onto the onto the bus, going up to Enfield and training after that. So it was like where we could find anywhere to train you know we did and even like going um, power league with my friends so my friend Mike Hudson and we would tend to go power league with him and, and, and his brothers and I remember I never well, there was one key point I remember my uncle offered me a lift to his house and his house probably about 
15 minute drive, um, 10 minute drive away. But I never ever took the lift when my uncle offered me. I'd always choose to run to his house. So I'm a person that very much believes in and knows the element of, you know, energy and, you know, whatever you put in, you always get rewarded along the line. So I just feel like the compounding of me continuously training every day, whether it was in a manner of me learning other stuff or not, it was just the impact of me, you know, just saying, all right, I'm just going for it. Like I'm going for it, I'm going for it, I'm going for it. And then, yeah, then eventually an opportunity came. But as I say, leading up to it, I don't think much changed in the sense of like the technical aspects or, or the teachings of the game, because when I did, you know, become a professional after that, now it was like, it was like learning football again, to be honest, because like I said, growing up, no one didn't really teach me anything like back foot pass or how to receive a ball. It was literally just, just play football. Yeah. And they, that's interesting. There's so many points to pick up from then. Um, one question quickly. Have you always been a left back or centre back when you were growing up? Nah, so I started off, I was obviously a local striker because of the pace at moments. So it was always striker or, or more or less left wing. Sometimes it'll be a striker, but more left wing. And then the left back came about when I was at Enfield and... Um, it Dave, Dave was the manager. Dave, I think, was it Dave? Dave McDonald's, I think his surname was. He was the manager and there was a guy called Ronnie who used to play on the left that he brought in. So when he took over and he just basically said, he said, listen, mate, I'll be honest, like, Ronnie's going to play left wing. Um, if you want, there's a space there for you left back. And obviously I didn't want to play left back, but at that point I was just like, oh, I just want to play football and, you know, and then ended up going left back and, actually kind of started taking a, a liking to it. So just continued to just play as a left back from there. Yeah. And I suppose um, in some respects, if you didn't make that change to left back and your attitude would maybe like in another lifetime, another universe per se, you could have said, nah, I want to play left wing, left midfield. The movements up through the ranks into the football league may never have like materialised. Well, this is it, you know, and I guess like sometimes like, even when I think of it and I think back of it, you know, we talk about, you know, the law of resistance, you know, whatever you resist will continue to, to persist. And maybe that worked in my, well, I guess it worked in my favour, not even a maybe that I didn't resist the fact of, you know, oh, you can't play. Like there was still an opportunity there, you know, an opportunity to play. And again, it was an opportunity where I then learned a different trade, a different positioning, which I had to then learn. And then, um, yeah, then I feel like if I think of it in that way, it's like, well, I then went on to have an opportunity when I did become professional in left wing positions at certain times anyway. So it was like, all right, have an opportunity some way, some shape, some form. And then if you look at it down the line, I play many games at left wing, you know, over at Yeovil. So there was a potential chance for me to, all right, show what you're worth now, if that's the case, if you wanted to look at it like that. So Sometimes I feel like footballers just need to be aware and understand, you know what, sometimes you may want your position, but some managers just have their favourable players at certain times. And wherever you can get in per se, you just got to get in and then, you know, then seize the opportunity from after there. Because you never know, that running guy might have got injured one of the times and I might have gone left wing and then someone else might have gone left back. You know, you, you just don't know. But again, a manager will respect you know, your attitude, if you know, you know, if he sees uh, an opportunity. Yeah, amazing. 
So talk to us about the breakthrough and getting um, your contract at Yeovil. What do you remember about those early memories? I mean, I've put down, it was two, 2008, you got that opportunity at Yeovil. Um, do you remember your debut as well? Do you remember that vividly? Yeah, I remember that clearly because it was a, it was snowing around them time because it was I was over um, so obviously it was going back and forth for a little while about a six week trial. Um, initially went over to Dagenham Redbridge, and um, John Steele was the manager at the time. And then I just remember like going over there, and I just I won't ever forget it. It just felt like players, young players, were being signed for the sake of signing them because you know what, there may be a chance to make some money off them. That was the feeling that I had at that time there. And because it didn't seem like anybody was really, I think there might be one person, but no one was really getting a chance. Like, you know, like you can just sense the way things were going in, in training. But as a young player, they was all happy. You know, yeah, I've got a contract and da, 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 so you're going to feel good about yourself. Yeah. Um, then I think he wanted me to he wanted me to sign, but he wanted me to sign a, a non-con just wanted me to sign registration papers. Now, at that time, I wasn't really aware of too much, you know, like in terms of but what I was aware of is that sometimes there's con artists. So I just remember thinking, I ain't signing nothing, bro. You are mad. Like, so I've asked you, like, where do you see me and your team? You're telling me, like, um, at this moment, third choice left back, but we would love you to sign certain forms because you know, if we do need you. I'm thinking, big man, if I'm third choice, you're going to have your second choice after me. So, oh, sorry, before me. So why the heck do you want me to sign this first? So I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So that's when I spoke to Steve. And I spoke to Steve Brown. And I called him. I was like, yo, I said, the man I'm trying to get me to sign some paper. I'm not trying to do that. I said, they're looking at me as like a third choice. And then he just turned around and he was just like... Well, that's why I can't take them kind of man there and I'll forget that. Now we ain't moving on that. Listen, I'm going to make a couple phone calls and we're going to do something different. So I was like, all right, say nothing, big boss. And then obviously left it down to him. Said he knew Steve Thompson down there and, you know, sort out a trial for, I think it was about six of us. So it was going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, then eventually I was the last person there. And I remember talking to Lee Peltier and he's like, listen, man, like the gaffer likes you a lot, you know, he likes you a lot. He's, you know, he's considering something. And then, I didn't really hear nothing for a little piece. They wanted me to come back for another game. And I'm thinking, bruv, like, now I'm the only person left. Like, no one else is coming down to stay at the hotels. And now I'm the only person left. And I'm not really used to being in this countryside areas and yeah. by myself, you know what I mean? And these times I was watching, um, what I used to watch, um, oh, what's my man's name? Um, oh, Dickinson's, was it Dickinson's Real Deal? I think it's different. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my show. Hey, I used to get back to the hotel one o'clock. You see the little bargain like love it. Absolutely love it. So um, yeah, so obviously I was the only one left. I had to come back for another another game one time. And to be honest, I kind of didn't really want to go back because I'm thinking, bro, right? If they want to sign me, imagine I have a game and it's not such a good game now. They may not give, offer me the contract or whatnot, but obviously went, still done well. And then they were like, it's, I think Russell, Russell said something, but there was not real cl too much clarity in it. But anyway, I just remember it was just before Good Friday, around the Good Friday times. And then I got a phone call because we were meant to have a game for Potter's Bar, but it was snowing, so it got called off. So we ended up just training in the snow. 
and then I got a phone call and basically uh, I think Nathan Jones had done something to his um, his elbow or something like that, his arm. And Russell said, oh, like, um, can Nathan come down? I want Nathan to be involved, want him to sign. So, yeah, ended up having to travel down and meet the, t- the team um, for the Hartlepool away game. Um, remember going into the hotel, one thing my grand used to always say to me, she used to say, because I used to always... I used to always have my particular way I ate with cutlery. And she used to always say to me, when you go to them posh places, you have to make sure you know how to use knife and fork. You can't be using no spoon. So I used to laugh. I'm thinking, nah, granny, I can't. I don't like using knife and fork. <laughs> so I remember when I got into the hotel, I said, all right, cool. I'm going to do what granny says. I tried to use the knife and fork. And that was like the hardest thing <laughs> in the world, mate. I said, granny, I love you. I can't do this. So I had to pick up my spoon and then, yeah, it was good. But then, yeah, obviously the game happened and then I got brought on. I think in the second half I came on and was it? No, it couldn't have been the second half. It might have been the first half. I came on early and I just remember the first thing I did, I got the ball and I kicked it out of play. And I remember after the game, Russell Slade was saying to people, them like, oh, he thought he made a mistake. He's thinking, fuck, I made a mistake here. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's going to melt up. Do you know, like the first contribution he's done is kick it out of the stadium. But then all of a sudden, I then got the ball from our box. And then I ran all the way from our box to the opposition's box and got a shot off. And then he was like, that, no, I think I might make the right decision. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, so... Yeah, that's, I remember that that early memory very, very fondly. And um, yeah, so I remember it was around the Good Friday times and yeah, being 21. And yeah, Nathan Jones and his, and his arm and he was out for a piece. Again, it's a knock-on effect of like situations that may not have developed, but you obviously capitalised on your opportunity um, and went on to make 113 appearances in that first spell at Yeovil in the league. So it's probably more in, in regards to cups and things like that. Your first spell at Yeovil, then, if I was to ask you your one favourite memory, because there'll be a lot of Yeovil fans listening to this, a lot of my mates as well. So if I was to say to you, um, from that first spell at Yeovil, what was your first memory? What would it have been? Um, first memory. Do you know what always stands out to me is um, playing, because I think the earliest parts of those first, like those early four games, which I obviously signed towards that latter part of the season, um. The game against Swansea, you know, it's standing strong because, like I said, like I'm actually thrown into an environment now where I'm actually having to learn on the job. And, you know, you're playing against the likes of um, Fabian Brandy, who, you know, was uh, from Man United at them time, and the movement was ridiculous. So now I'm coming against some different types of manoeuvres and, you know, obviously you've got Trundle, all these. So... That memory always sticks to me because, again, like I said, I'm now thrown into a pit where I'm like, it's, you know, sink or swim kind of element. So that's always like a a strong memory, like those parts there. But like the fans of the early part, there was always, yeah, they used to always be very, very, very encouraging as well, I must say. That was something I noticed from the early part because I think, obviously, going into that space as well, you don't know about how to block out the outside fans, you know, you're on the pitch and it's like everything comes with it. And it can be difficult in the beginning when you, you just don't know about how to block out anything, you know. But 
one thing I do know is that in the early parts, even if I did make certain wrong decisions or whatever, I did notice like the fans were very much behind me a lot of the time. Like I didn't hear any negative shouts or anything like that. Like it was always positive in the early stages. That's amazing to hear. And just touching on that then, so going from like a part-time footballer to then being professional, what other big changes did you have to make in, in regards to your game? And what, what do you remember vividly having to learn on the spot, like really quickly? Um, number one was the sharpness of the game, like mentally, like staying prepared, you know, because especially like training, you know, you come in one day, yeah, you might be able to get through that session, but then the next day, it's whoosh, 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 you know, so much is going on again. So mentally, it was making sure, you know, having adequate sleep, um, you know, looking at the things that I was eating at the time, you know, just trying to change little things in that essence there, um, you know, even learning, like, how to kick the ball straight. Because, bruv, sometimes I used to kick the ball and it just used to go all over the gaff. So I remember Nathan Jones, um, he was teaching me, you know, you know, open up your, your waist when you're going to strike through the ball. That way it will more go straight. So like literally it was learning everything at the age of 21. And when I think of it now, I'm like, wow, it's just so crazy. Like I still think of it at times. I'm like, no one actually taught me nothing in regards to, you know, like I said, how to strike a ball or back foot. What it was just... I was just playing for 21 years, you can say. Yeah, incredible. And then uh, you moved on to Chesterfield where, I mean, your, your, your spells at Yeovil were successful in their own rights, just especially individually for the amount of appearances that you made. Obviously, I, I, I consider you a club legend. I mean, I've always kept an eye on Yeovil and stuff and you're always, you were always in and about it, like mm. a key, key part, you know. Um, but you went to Chesterfield and won, won the league with them. So you went from being part-time footballer, getting your opportunity at Yeovil, taking it, making over 100 league appearances for them, going to Chesterfield, getting a man of the match performance at Wembley, as well as winning the league one season. So that must be real fun memories for you. Yeah, no, like, it's all fun. Obviously, like, I feel like that whole experience shaped and changed a lot of how I looked at things. So, for example, obviously that first season, if I'm correct, we got relegated even though we won the JPT and um, that was the same year, obviously Yeovil got promoted as well. And I never forget one of my friends messaged me when Yeovil got promoted. He's like, oh, I bet you wish you stayed. And I remember thinking, flipping that bug, you didn't even want to mess me when we won, you know, the JPT and I got flipping, you know, man of the match and, you know, stuff like that. So, but I think what was interesting was the whole essence of, if you get relegated, that's it, you're done. Like, that's how it was always perceived. If you get relegated, no one's going to want you. This is that, that's that. So to go through that element of failure, it was a nasty feeling because you actually feel like it's all, like, it's done. Like, you know what I mean? Like, even though that was now us just going to drop into League Two, you know, you feel like it's all done. Um, but I think through that experience, you kind of learn and it's like, well, when I look at the two experiences of obviously being relegated, but then also being in a promotion winning team with Paul Cook, you see what it you see what it takes mm. to have a failure culture, and you see what it takes to have a winning environment culture. And so 
to be it's like I was enlightened to again receive that knowledge of seeing that element and the other element and mate there's nowhere nowhere of it's even close they're just do you know what I mean it's left and right one of yeah. them ones you know what I mean and so I guess like the lesson that I learned through all them that that failure element with a manager you know seeing how you know a manager can be and how important his role is especially in today's society where a lot of players they can't handle the uh, the say let's say they can't handle the shouting and the, the the certain kind of words as you know some would have back in the day so for example players that were 10 years older than me like that era there there was a lot more shouting and people could demand more in certain ways and what they can demand more just by shouting at you verbally whereas now or even from that point there, like society began to change, you know, a lot of the, you know, that you could say the, the computer technology type of people, the, the phone sorts of people. And when you look at people's upbringings, some people just weren't even really spoken to at times. So it's like, all right, now when you shout at someone, they don't have that emotional resilience to even accept, you know what, this person just talking in a way to try and get the better out of me. So I can see why the whole ship there at that point, they're just capsizing. John Sheridan, like, he was a good person. Do you know what I mean? When I look at it, he was a good person. It was just that he just wanted the best, but it was like small, simple things. It was like, well, why would you make that kind of pass? Or why would you like, you know, things that you look at as simple and obviously that his abilities is, is, is next level in it. You know, he used to join into training sessions sometimes and we'll say he had one leg. And he used to boss the sessions on the next team. You couldn't get close to him, like Mad. literally. And I'm saying, this man has got one, one tyrant, but I was, I was ready for him. I decided, I said, I knew the ball was going to go to him. I'm going to run over to him and clamp him. Listen, <laughs> remember, like I said, he can't move that good. He just killed it in a perfect touch and just moved it so quick to a point where you couldn't even slide in or anything like that because it just made no sense so you know like I said so you get to understand the element of you know through the failures what kind of key points create that failure type of environment you know the minute you blame one person the way some players can be they kind of create I would call it that that terrorist um, group so you blame one person and you blame someone else okay so now that allows a two-two blame set of people to come together uh, gaff is a fool man the gaff is this the gaff is that Blah, 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 blah. then you know the gaffer may say something to someone else and especially if the gaffer doesn't have the awareness to say you know what I can feel that there's something brewing then the more you now keep digging out other players the more that dig out culture decides to go to one side and play the whole victim card and the last thing you need in any football team is any victims because it's so easy to bring victims in it's so easy mate you know what I mean but then like I said when you look at the opposite side with Paul Cook the environment was just a different environment it was just up Paul Cook had a different way how, how he maneuvered the players yeah you can say the players were different kind of players but like they were very much motivated themselves you know what I'm saying it's not like he had to do too much in that aspect you know you've got Sam Wolsey is always driving it you know you had like Sam Hurd who was just like great character but always wanted to win Ian Ever like you had these different kind of characters like, like Tommy Tommy was always just on it the goalkeeper but they always had a fun side to them as well mark richards so like they had this fun element to them but 
they had the serious element. So it was like you was able to get that best of both worlds, like Gary Roberts, flipping full-time joker when he's ready. Full-time, like he loves, I don't know anyone loves jokes like him, but he loves jokes. But you see the minute he's on that pitch, it's game on. It's like he's not taking no foolishness. He'll get the ball in any place and try and dictate it. Like he, it was, those were the differences massively, you know? So it wasn't just banter, banter. It was, all right, cool. Now it's time to work. We go to work. And then I think when you've got a strong coach like Shina, who then has that element to be himself as well, because I feel like when you allow, especially like staff members to bring their side of themselves out, it allows them to kind of give the best to the players as well. So the experience at Chesterfield as though, it's like, because there's some people saw it as, oh my gosh, like you got relegated. But when you go through that illusion of what, relegation is and a failure like it was a massive massive learning curve and a and a great learning experience yeah it's amazing it's amazing insight to hear obviously your take on what happened at Chesterfield would you say that it was mainly down to obviously like you can answer this or what but would you say it was mainly down to players attitudes then in regards to the comeback the next season or was it just a case of not being potentially managed correctly in that first relegation season? Um, you know what? Sometimes it can be a bit of both. Do you know what I mean? Because again, like some players can't take how some people speak. Do you know what I mean? And it's sometimes it becomes a me, me, me kind of environment. Like you need to talk to me how I want you to talk to me. You know what I mean? But I always look at it like this and I'm saying like, when someone goes on, I don't know, let's say they go on eBay and they, or they might go on ASOS and they go buy a one product or whatever. Now, I never hear anybody, com- I never hear anybody um, complain about oh, who the delivery driver was or the delivery company. I don't hear no one say, oh, oh I don't want raw milk. Oh, why did um, Yoda have to bring this to me? Or why did Parcel have to bring this to me? People are just happy because, you know what, I've got, what I wanted. Do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't care who delivered the, my, my item. I got my item, what I wanted. So where I see the difference is some players will say, oh yeah, I want a man to tell me the truth. I want boom, boom, boom. But a lot of men can't handle the truth. Do you know what I mean? Then it's like, oh, the way he said this to me or the way that man said that to me and the way this, and it's like, mate, you, if you want the message that you want and you're getting the message that you say you want, sometimes don't worry about the delivery. As long as you're getting your message, just like when you go on ASOS and you order your T-shirt, you get your T-shirt, you're happy. But again, like I say, like a lot of players have that victim mindset. Whereas, and then like I said, like I said then, like, then you have a manager then that doesn't identify that. So like, for example, Darren Way noticed it very well and he pointed something out very good. And he wouldn't, scrutinize any player like he wouldn't like pick anyone out and it started getting annoying at one time like why are you not telling people like about themselves at times now you know but what he identified was the minute you pick one person and they can't hack it and you might just you might not you might not even be disrespecting it you might just say listen you've been at fault for how many chances now whatever if that person can't accept it they're going to their own little mood then again, cool. So now that person's going to hold that against you. Now, if you get onto a next person as well, as we say, cool. 
that person, that person may not even have too much interaction with the other person more time, you know, but now they have something to link with and chat about. So something cool. in common. There you go. And again, like, when you look at things from an energetic point of view, because again, like I said, more time people focus so much upon the physical aspect, but from an energetic point of view, like when things are negative, negativity can arise a lot more quicker than positivity. Do you know what I mean? So from you adding more man, more man into that corner, you feel the environment. Like I feel that at Chesterfield the first year, like you feel just a sour environment. You're walking through in the morning, yeah. That that the to go into the players um, into the into the change room, and you walk through the first door, like the manager's office is there, and you got to walk in. You got a bus, alright. Well, there were certain times, Harry, but I'm trying to do this. Like, you don't even want your elbow to be seen at at the door. Do you know what I mean? And like, you kind of just feel like you go home, then you you feel like refreshed, but then you're like, oh. Now I've got to go training tomorrow. And you kind of know what environment you're coming into. So that's like, it's key. Like I said, it is a balance of two. I feel like sometimes though, some players do, they love to throw the card around too much anyway. Like some players just like, they love to be a victim, you know? And I guess like in the space, you can't have victims, which is why although people say, oh, too much man get too much money and whatnot. I can understand why people may say that, but in the game and the sport that we're in, and because of the way society is going, flip me, like, the value of players who don't play this victim card goes up more, which is why a lot of managers will say, you know what, we need this person here. It might cost a bit more, but you know what, someone could be as good within skill level as that person, but I can't deal with that victim mindset, that victim behaviour. Like, that's something that we're not trying to build around here. So, yeah, so some players just need to cut out that victim mindset, but also equally some managers need to be understanding of of players and how they are and and you know you have to learn to adapt some managers still live in flipping Timbuktu with the way they handle players you know so again some managers need to be aware that you have to deal with people very much differently yeah like some players would need an arm around the shoulder and some genuinely don't mind having a kick up the ass type thing yeah yeah 100% and just touching on that what you just said there like so and that arm on the shoulder, because I know people will hear it and it just sounds like one of them ones, isn't it? Like, but it's necessarily just like, sometimes it's just like, oh, how are you today? Like, you know, how's things been and how's things been at home? Because a lot of the time people don't take that genuine time out to, you know, be interested in anybody's life. And again, sometimes everyone goes through their own situation. Some people know how to process it. Some people don't know how to process it. And it could just be, you know, just having that genuine conversation with a person, but not using it in a way. Because again, some managers, what they will do is they'll go and read flipping Alex Ferguson's book and Alex Ferguson knew flipping this man's dog's name and cat's name and this, then they won't go and do the same thing. But what they're trying to do is it in a, in a vindicative kind of way where it's like, all right, I'm trying to do this this way, but it's not really genuine. But people can feel when you're not really being genuine. You know what I mean? Like people can generally feel when you're not being genuine. And again, like I said, that's one aspect which people tend to ignore, which is why I've got a lot of respect for Potocino because he speaks about a lot of energy stuff within his um that book that he wrote right whilst he was at Spurs. I have to check that out. So mm-hmm. after your stint at Chesterfield, then you made the decision to have a return to Yeovil. Was that an easy one to make for you? 
Yeah, hundred percent. Because I always enjoyed working with Darren Way and Skiverton. Obviously, I hadn't worked with um, Gary Johnson, but you kind of get to a space where you're just like, you know, managers are managers, isn't it? Like, yeah. Every manager you chat to, bro, they're gonna say the same thing. They all say this, yeah, we're trying to build this, we're building this dynasty, we're doing this, yeah, we've got a great group of lads. They all say the same thing. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? So you're take basically in a sense taking a gamble at times, isn't it? Like, all right, you're either gonna go or you're not gonna go. You just gotta weigh it up yourself and whatever, because like I said, they all more or less say the same thing. No one's gonna say oh. bit of a sales pitch. Yeah, like it's a like it's, a, it's an outdated one. <laughs> See what I mean, like all managers come from outdated sales pitch. So when you hear one, then you hear the next one saying, "Say, oh, flip it, heck, mate." Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Come with something different, but yeah. So it was more obviously the Darrell Way and um, Terry Skibbert and link up, which was more was obviously the the appealing factor. And it was like I obviously always enjoyed working with Darrell Way beforehand because it was a lot of the work that I was doing with him, which put me into that position that allowed me to, you know, get into that position to go to, to Chesterfield. Amazing. I mean, I do have to speak to you about international football. You made two appearances for Jamaica. Mm-hmm. T- talk to the listeners about that. That must have been some experience, especially as your debut was against Honduras as well. And anybody mm-hmm. knows, like, I mean, that's not the worst international side to make your debut against, is it? Let's be fair. Mate. It was, I don't know, like, it was just, it was interesting, you know. It was different to what I expected, you know, even, like, the managers and whatnot, the players, because obviously the environment that we kind of grew up in is that players sit by themselves at the dinner table and stuff like that. But the manager, you're just like, yo, you come through, what, Majana, you're good, everything nice, everything blessed, everyone's sitting around, everyone's chatting with each other. And, like, it was just different and... You know, there was always jokes. Was if you've ever been to Jamaica, like it's just a jokes environment. Like everyone just has fun. You know, everyone has so much fun. Um, but yeah, the experience was different in the beginning. Like we stayed at the players' house, which had a lot of bunk beds and stuff like that, which I didn't expect to see. But again, it was nice because everyone was in the one space, and you know, they had the the chefs there, which I still actually still speak to. You know, so made some good connection with people over there. Um, but yeah, the game against Honduras was interesting because I'm like, bruv, I'm getting escorted by flipping people with guns now. Like, you know, the police and all of this. I'm like, what's going off? And then, you know, you got the fans as you get to the stadium, they're just beating on the side of the bus. And it's like, yo, this ain't, this ain't no joke team where we're at right now. Like, this is real, like, this is real warrior season right now. You know what I mean? And then you go into the stadium and like the atmosphere just feels different. Do you know what I mean? Like, because I feel like when you go to England, you go into English like teams and whatnot, there's always that like kind of that kind of feel how people talk. But when it's like you go into a foreign country, it's like, I don't know, maybe because there's different words that they use the feel of when you go into these spaces are completely different because you can feel, right, this don't sound like the regular football environments that you're used to. So I guess that's where, like, you know, how these environments can be massive, like, when it goes to, like, you know, international teams playing home and away. And it makes so much sense. And again, so this is why you look at, you know, footballers very much differently in, in the aspects that, you know, coming from one environment, 
can you be mentally strong in a completely different environment? Because if you look at the brain, our brain is a, is a pattern making machine. You know, it tries to simplify things by just making patterns as simple as possible um, from its environment. So you continually play in an environment in, in, in England, your brain just adapts to, all right, cool, this is what happens when you go here, this is what happens when you go here, this is the sound, this is the sound. Now all of a sudden you throw yourself in a different environment, your brain says, oh yeah, football stadium. But now the sounding is completely different. So, you know, these things may seem small, but they have such an impact if you can't, you know, control that feeling when it just comes up. Because again, that's where some people now can end up fleeting. So yeah, the game was a, a sick experience. You had, um, who was playing the guy from um, the left back that used to play for Wigan? I can't what his name is, but he was playing for them. Um, I got, I got, was Palacios not? Honduran, Wilson Palacios. I mean, I may be making that up. I'm not too sure, but I know that one in the name. I can't remember what his name was. I remember he used to play for Wigan. He was left back, but yeah, so he played over there as well. And like, it was just a wicked experience, man. Like again, it was so much learnings to take from it. You know, the people that I met, the teammates, and I think I even had to take a corner one of the times, and I was like. Flipping out that you want me to take a corner? <laughs> so I don't think <laughs> you've done your research, Gaffer, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he just thinks you've got a whip on you, mate. That's what uh, it is. Mate. I'm just trying to. Oh, Figueroa. There you go. Boom. Yeah. Figueroa, Figueroa, Figueroa. Yeah. So he played. And I remember thinking, damn, like, I'm really outside right now, isn't it? I'm outside with some different mandem in some different environment. So. Yeah, no, it was a wicked experience. The people in Jamaica were wicked, you know, like, and I think what I, I noticed was that I can see how much of an impact that sport can have on a country because it was like, people are so dependent upon you to win because they actually just want to cheer as a collective. And so it only made me understand like the, the feeling that must have been gained when Usain Bolt won like at the Olympics or whatever it was like, it's just a, a complete, complete togetherness. So, yeah, man, it was a, it was a great experience, man. It was a great experience. Yeah, it's incredible. It sounds amazing. Um, you then finished off with another 146 league appearances for you in your second spell, which is, like, phenomenal, really, in terms of um, league, football league appearances. And then, unfortunately, obviously, for every footballer, the, the sort of gradual slow end to your career takes shape. But you did play for Dagenham and Redbridge as well. Um, was that a good experience for you coming towards the end of your career? Um, yeah, like, obviously, you didn't want the Yeovil one to end the way it ended. You know, um, and I just remember, I think it was 296 appearance. I remember I got um, a shirt saying 296 at the end. Wow. Um, so, yeah, obviously, I didn't want it to end the way it ended, but it did. And, again, that was an experience that... I was actually grateful for because I've never been in a position of being released. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Every year I've had something more or less lined up. So now I was in this position, like flipping on. Now I'm being told you're released. Like, for like, what, 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 what did you do? Do you know what I mean? And then sitting down in the environment of two people that I've got a lot of respect for and hearing them, you know, say certain things, it was more just absorbing the the experience because at the at, I'll be honest at one point I was just like oh I just feel like they're just blabbering 
and and part of me just wanted to get up and come out of the room but then I'm like I don't know something inside of me said no like you have to embody this experience like just take it in for what it is right now whether you feel like x y and z saying x y and z or not embrace this experience because one thing that I've always wanted to do is obviously which I'm doing at the moment is you know help players whether it be players that are still in football or outside of football you know deal with failure deal with these kind of situations so being in this predicament I can't walk out of it right now I have to embrace and embody this whole moment to be able to be able to say, cool, I've been through this. You know what I mean? And I know how it feels when people are saying certain things that you possibly don't really agree with and you rather just feel like, just say, you know, just keep it simple, keep it brief and we just keep it moving. You know, so um, that was a, an experience itself. Obviously going over to Dagenham and Redbridge, that was a, it was an interesting time, you know, because I was in a situation, I could say I was in a relationship at the time, which, I feel like, well, it didn't serve me whatsoever. And, and if there's one thing that I recommend and I would say to, to sports people in general is mate, like you've got to make sure you've got the right person by your side because, you know, they can do certain things within situations that put you off your whole game of football and your mind, you know, you could, your mind needs to be focused. And if someone is di um, derailing your focus over foolishness, you just you shouldn't you shouldn't 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 put yourself around it so again i had to go through all of that and then obviously i'm not getting injured i think i got injured my first game and that was like the 90th minute do you know what i mean like right at the end of the game um i played wicked got injured at the 90th minute and i think i was out for about three months after that um then i remember coming back and again when I say certain relationships don't serve you, trust me, because Pochettino used to always say, and I remember you said it in his book, how you live your life off the pitch is how you're going to show yourself on the pitch, you know? And I remember there was a one game, one moment where in my relationship at some time, it was like, yo, like the, the amount of things that was going, it felt like man was on eggshells, like every time. Do you know what I mean? Eggshells, eggshells. And I swear you put up a little something the other day. Yesterday you put something up on your... um your thing about Mark Manson. Yeah, yeah. something to do like like the relationships and stuff like that. And I laugh. Yeah. So um so yeah like obviously it's gonna be that kind of fleeting kind of thing. And so it was like I'm in a situation where I know I shouldn't be in it, but you kind of find yourself in this situation you kind of feel stuck. Cool no problem. Now it's like now I'm on eggshells every single second. Now I never forget now like I said Pot said it best how you live a life off the pitch will show yourself on the pitch. One game I played, I'm not sure what game it was for Dagon. I didn't want the ball. Like, I literally, I just didn't want the ball for 90 minutes. Literally. Like, I just didn't want it. And then, what's happened? I've got through more or less than 90 minutes, Harry. I'm thinking, yeah, cool, we're good. Boom, what happens? Lastminute.com, ball back stick, spread over the top, header, my man. I said, no, 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 no. And I knew where this all was coming from. Do you know what I mean? So again, like the experience over there, and this is actually the first time anyone's really, really here. So now you've got a, a little exclusive guy. Exclusive, mate. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, but the reason why I talk these things is because they're important because there are a lot of things that a lot of players, especially a lot of men, won't even talk about. Do you know what I mean? And I know there's a lot of mandem 
in some sticky situations which they know they shouldn't be in and they're in and it's messing with their career. Do you know what I mean? Like I remember like one of my other friends years ago, like he was a prime, he was with one with a girl and it didn't really serve him. Yes, he was a bit of a knob at the same time, but <laughs> the whole thing wasn't serving each other. Do you know what I mean? So again, like if your ambition really is as a footballer to, you know, fully get to the top or do as best as you can, you got to make sure that the woman that you've got, but first and foremost, let's not forget, you as a man can't be a prick. You know what I mean? You can't move like a prick yourself. So let's make sure we put that out there. So make sure you're moving with good intentions. But then the person who, you know, you're trying to build with has to be on the same level and, you know, not disturbing you from, you know, your focus. Amazing. I think it's a great time to move on to it, really, because I've put down, I've read a few things about you, Nath, and uh, you, in your, on your website, it says, that you, you've been on a journey of self-discovery. Now, obviously, being a professional footballer, and now this is, a, this is like, um, this is me kind of tar- tarring most people with the same brush, but you don't really have time to do that, surely. Like when you're training every day, matches two times a week, probably football league, um, traveling here and there for different games and whatnot. So when did you first sort of a take an interest in mindset and your own mind for it for like for better way of saying it and then b what were your first experiences of sort of finding yourself or trying to find yourself as such it's actually a good question you know um when i think of it you're welcome (laughs) it probably started because now i'm looking at the angle you know that angle you're trying to really think like boom when was it now so when i think about it it was it definitely became around like Chesterfield days. And what I mean by that is that's when Twitter started becoming very like prevalent. So, you know, you have fans just saying some nasty things towards you at times, you know, get out of our team or you're not a good player. He needs to go. This person needs to go. And I remember sometimes like, like how do you deal with this? You know, because you gravitate towards comments, you know, like, because as a human being, everybody wants that feeling of acceptance, especially if you've not learned to master your emotions. But if no one's even taught you about your emotions, you don't even know what you're trying to, you know, you're just trying to get a good feeling wherever you go. So I know it started from around then. And, um, you know, I would then start reading certain books and certain stuff like that. Um, started doing like bits of journaling and just being aware of little things. And then it got to a point where it's like, I remember reading something like, every negative will outweigh a positive by a nine, by like, by like eight, nine times. So it was all right, cool. How do I then maneuver with these comments? Because I'm finishing a game and I'm actually checking my mentions. And because you kind of just want people to say it's nice stuff because no footballer goes out there to make mistakes, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? But again, you realize um, fans are just going to say what they're going to say whenever they're ready. And then I don't know, I just remember just saying to myself, all right, cool, what I'm going to do with this. I'm just not going to look at any mentions, whether they be good or whether they be negative. I'm just not going to look because opposites attract, isn't it? Like if I'm searching for the good, I'm going to have to find the bad somewhere along the line, isn't it? So if I don't search for nothing, then I get nothing. Do you know what I mean? All I get is then just me, myself and I. So that's where it very much did stem from, um, then I think um, after meeting Sam Morsey, because of the type of character that he is, 
we always like even like now we have crazy conversations about like mindset and book recommendations he's a person that if he texts me right now and said mate go get this book I don't even question him I just go straight at Amazon boom like because we like and what I like with him now even at this point yeah he's league one championship or league one now but I like he gets it at the same time and I still maneuver like I'm up in league one like that's always my attitude so I always say this thing when someone says oh our uh, ex-professional I said brother what does this ex-professional mean I said you don't need to be a professional to be a professional I said because what is a professional title I said even when people say oh you retire from football have you are you going to retire from football well if you're going to retire from something that means you stop doing something completely correct so I said if I'm going to still go and play ball with my people then why the heck am I going to say retiring so these are some of these social concepts and illusions that people create that you know create barriers so again it's like you get stuck in an identity of um saying which is a big issue and why a lot of footballers will have nervous breakdowns because let's say for example 10 years or plus of your life or even more oh, oh what do you do oh, i'm a footballer i'm a footballer i'm a footballer i'm a footballer you introduce yourself as a footballer for such a long time that as far as you're concerned, you're a footballer, you know? Now, when that illusion of footballer is, you know, close to coming away, who are you now? Because you've spent such a long time identifying yourself as a footballer. Now it's like you're chasing and you're trying to grab this illusion of footballer to come back. But remember that it's not physical. You know what I mean? It's intangible. You can't grab it. You know what I mean? So, like... A lot of these questions then started coming and I'll just start questioning everything. And then me and Sammy Moore's be having dialogue all of the time and be questioning this and then we're questioning each other. He might question some things I do. I'm questioning some things that he does. And then it made us more aware to certain things because we knew like we want the best for each other. And just questioning each other about things and coming together with each other and, you know, looking at certain things. Yeah, it, it deepened my uh, as i say the the self journey the self journey quest amazing i want to ask you a deep question then so you say you're not a footballer mm-hmm. uh although like in in lots of people's eyes you are and you have mm-hmm. been and you've been a hero to many mm-hmm. so without the labels and without the tangibles who is nathan smith so if we're going to be honest there is no nathan smith because when i was born who was I? I wasn't really no one in it. Like my mom decided to slap me with a name Nathan Smith. Um, then the, they decided to even slap me with the title of black man. Like, but if I didn't have that, I'm no one. And then in essence, all I am, I'm just a human being having a, a I'm a spiritual being having a, a human experience. You know, so like what we suffer from a lot of the time is the labeling theory, you know, and even today. So obviously before we've just just touched on, obviously today I've done a a workshop on, you know, diversity and inclusion and all that. And I always find it interesting because there's so much identity that we have to subscribe to within the society that some people just don't know who they are anymore, you know, and, 
people get drawn away from this and they don't realize, you know? And that's why I always say like, if I was to ask you to describe yourself and who you are without using your name, without um, saying who your family are, without your job title, who are you? And some people just freeze. They generally just freeze. So again, like when you look at things from a spiritual point of, of being like, we're always in the essence of advancing, you know, you're a prime example, Harry, like you said, you started your podcast, you didn't expect it to just go boom, especially so quick. And now you're at an advancing stage where this person's, you know, you're attracting that person, that person, you're attracting that person. And that's just how life is. Like life is always expressing the more we move along with it. Now, if I keep trying to stay confined as Nathan the footballer, Nathan the footballer, then there's certain things I can't do. So now when, for example, call my vegan food and vibes, some people, they'll be like, oh, what, are you a chef? Now, I know I can cook up enough food. I, I've learned how to cook. I know all these things and whatever. But I don't want to be known as a chef, you know? Oh, so what, what do you do then? What do you do? I'm just like, I'm an energy enthusiast, you know? Like, I like I love to that. help people. I love do that. that. Do you I know what I mean? Because love that, mate. Yeah, that's so cool. Anything else then puts me into a box. And that's been something that I've, be honest, is something that I've kind of had to be fighting with myself personally because people don't realise it, but they actually try to box you without realising. So people are like, no, but, 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 but obviously you've got to be, I'm like, no, like if my thing is generally about energy, you know, anything I do when I do the workshops is all based around the element of energy, whether it is to do with an identity workshop, whether it is to do about emotional wellness or meditation all these things encompass as you know an energy point of view when you understand that there's unseen forces which are clearly there but when now you choose to not pay attention they harm you so i could say for example we probably you probably be there yourself Ari, like you go into a room and you've walked in a room and that room just thought you're like boy i don't know you know something don't feel right about this room and these people you know now that's your senses going off, yeah? But sometimes, but we'll go into these rooms and we'll, we'll say, you know, we're coming out. But then sometimes people will be around certain people, it could be a relationship or whatever, and those same senses are firing off, you know? Boy, you know what? Like, nah, like, I'm going to give it, I'm gonna give it a, a go because you know, some people can be, you know, and then before you know it, you keep going through it, keep going through it. I remember those same feelings are there, which is why now I say this, when people used to say it before, I would say, nah, never that. Man can't be that. Never that. But now I happily say it. I am sensitive. And the reason why I say this, because I sat down one time and I said, bruv, <laughs> Spider-Man is sensitive, you know? He detects everything. Senses. Senses. So I'm like, okay, so what society here has done, they have made us, especially as men, not want to embrace that element of being sensitive. Now, there's nothing wrong with being sensitive. Do you know what I mean? Because you can now pick up every kind of feeling. Like you could, if you embrace all your senses, you embrace every kind of feeling, i.e. Spider-Man. You know, Spider-Man knows when the danger are out. Yeah, sometimes Venom may catch him a couple of times when he's off guard, but... <laughs> His senses are up. So I said, you know what? 
I'm embracing all of my senses. I'm sensitive. Like I understand what sensitivity truly means. And, you know, so again, I work off more of that the energy, you know, the energy elemental thing and be an energy enthusiast. That's incredible. That's, that's amazing. We'll, we'll go back in now. Um, you spoke about meditation then and like being more aware of your senses, things like that. I'm, I'm in fact, I'm not even going to say I'm sure. I'm 100% sure that you are way, way ahead of me in terms of the realms of meditation. Um, in 2016, um, I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly. You went to a silent retreat in Vipa, Vipassana. Vipassana? Yeah. yeah. In, in India, but it was a, a Vipassana uh, meditation retreat. So there you went through the experiences of no communication with the others that were there, no eye contact, no electronics. And some days would meditate for 14 hours in a day. Now, Naif, I do 15 minutes, mate. And I, 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 no, I'm not going to say it's a challenge, but, you know, like to make, to, to, to purposely make 15 minutes in your day that you are saying you've got to wind down for five minutes before really to get anything from it, then do your 15 minutes. And then you've got to kind of slowly go back into the realms of the world that's around you. How did you cope with 14 hours? <laughs> so um, when I say 14, 15 hours, that was the amount of time per day that the sessions would more or less total. Now, mate, before I got there, I tried to do half an hour on the train to Mansfield. Yeah, bruv, I conked out after 10 minutes. Yeah, so that was always going to be a challenge for me. I didn't know how long they were going to last for, but the first ones were lasting like enough or two hours and stuff like that. And I didn't realize that you can actually come out for a little breather if you wanted to. So the early parts, I was still sitting in the room and I'm twitching, I'm this, I'm lying against the wall now because my back's hurting, everything. So it was a challenge for me in the beginning, you know, and it was only up until I think the, the fifth day, I think it was the fifth day, one of those days anyway, where I ended up, I managed to sit for half an hour. But what was interesting was that the days went on and I started getting less sleep. But there was a meditation technique which they said, which like, if you wasn't sleeping, you can do this and this will give your body more rest. And it was just observing every single part of your body from head to toe, head to toe. And so when I couldn't sleep, I'd done that. So there was one night I, I probably got about three hours sleep. Next night, two hours sleep. Next night, half an hour sleep. And I'm thinking this is long. So bear in mind, so if I say, cool, Obviously, like I said, no reading, no writing, no talking, no eye contact. We had to sleep on the metal beds. The beds were very, very low. Um, we didn't have to pay to go there as well. So the essence of not paying was that anything we tend to give money for, we will bring our ego along with us. Um, so if you paid a five pound for the retreat, you know, one of the times I flipping got like 200 mil of chickpeas. That was it. Now, if I paid a, a fiver, I would have said something about my fiver in regards to the chickpeas, even though is a fiver really going to cover you for 10 days, but the ego will come true. So now there's no chance for the ego to really come true. And then plus the element of the, the metal bed and it being low, one, that is good for your posture, but two, it keeps your ego low as, uh, it keeps your ego low as well. 
um, had to hand wash our own clothes as well. Um, three meals a day, I had to walk there enough two and a half minutes just to get some water. Um, but yeah, so the element of the meditation, like I said in the beginning, was difficult for me. You know, I'm in the room for two hours and my mind's just doing a craziness. Like I'm all, you know, judging some people just by the way they walk because I can't talk to them. So now I'm, I'm trying to actually photograph, like Photoshop them as a person like oh, I wonder what they like and they must be like this they must be like that you know you've got a man as far as I'm concerned we're washing up our own plates where I come from use a sponge to clean out your plate he's using his hands so I'm creating a bias about this guy straight away like my man's nasty what's, what's he on bro bear in mind I can't talk but all this is going off in my head you know um but yeah like it was a a, a good experience because like I said you get to learn that you create a prejudice sometimes without even realizing at a subconscious level, you know, like you judge people for the smallest of things. Like I said, the way someone's walking, I'm starting to question certain things. And why is my mind doing all of these things? You know, really and truly I should just be in this environment and I should just be, you know, winding down and whatnot. There's even an element where, when I, before I went, I actually thought I was going to die. Um, I was like, boy, I don't know, something makes me feel like I'm going to die through this whole experience. And then I think the fourth day after one of the meditations, um, I got up very quick. And when I got up, I was very much lightheaded. So when you stay in, in that space of a meditative state for a period of time, like you can actually start feeling your spirit. And the reason why I actually like speaking about this is because no one could ever turn around and say to me, oh, bro, this man drinks this man smokes, this man does this, this man does that. Like, so I know I'm talking from an authentic, nothing else tried to, you know, enhance the experience, just a pure natural experience. So, and that's the reason why I wanted to go over there as well, because there's so many talk of so many things that some people will write off people because of, I don't know, they may be involved in psychedelics or they might do just, you know, take certain things or whatever, or enhancements. Whereas if I was able to gain an experience, then no one can't take that from me because I know I don't drink. I know I don't smoke, never smoked and none of these things. So, but yeah, so I've done a meditation one time and I got up very quick and I was lightheaded. And I literally, Harry, I got up and I just dropped to the left-hand side. And the left-hand side was the women. So you had women in the, um, in the camp as well, but like they'll be over in their own section. So men and women didn't ever um, interlink only other than when we had the meditation, but there was one side and we were one side. And I never forget, so bear in mind I thought before I got to India, I'm gonna die. Now I'm thinking I'm gonna die. These man, them just pinned me down on the floor, bruv. Yeah. I said, oh, I said, I'm gone, I'm gone, I'm gone. I'm and I just didn't even fight it because I just thought, bruv, like, where am I really gonna run if I'm gonna get you know done out right now, innit? But they just held me there for a period of time for about I don't know a minute or two, and then they let me go. And then what I found out afterwards, when I spoke to my friend when I finished the retreat, she was like, Yeah, no, what is when you come out, like, especially when you're in them environments you know, the collective energy together, you're going to probably get into your meditative state a lot more quicker. And if you get up too quick and the recording did say, just open your eyes and, you know, take a moment, but little old Nathan decided he won get up quick and yeah, felt, felt a bit faint. So yeah, now you, again, you get to learn about like the different sides of yourself. You know, why do we think the things that we think, 
how comes these things just automatically just happening? Then, you know, you question like, what are these words that are coming in my head? Like, are they even thoughts of my own? Because I've never heard a surgeon open someone's brain and say, yeah, you found a few letters come out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So all these questions were just coming up. And then, yeah, like it was a, it was a great experience because again, even like when I came out, the type of feeling that I had was different to any other feeling I've had before. You know, it was like on my right side of my head, I could feel like a, a knocking and I couldn't work it out whatsoever. So um, I remember going back to the, towards the hotel, went to the zoo and I could feel like a knocking all of the time. But it was like a, it felt like a strong knock, but I couldn't work it out. So I remember I was going to step into the road one time. Somebody said to me, don't step. And my, my, my head just started going again. So as I changed my mind to not step in the road, whoosh, a bike rides by. So I'm like, jeez, flipping out. Like, all right, cool. Then I went to go to the toilet. Now, I was probably about 20 yards away from the toilet. And all I know, I got a bit closer, say about another five yards. I'm still far from the toilet. And then my nose started tingling. So I'm like, what the heck? When I say like a real tingling, like there's a bumblebee in my nose. And I'm like, what the heck's going off here? Like, and as I got a little bit more closer, the strongest smell had just hit my nose. And I said, oh my gosh, like the senses obviously have obviously heightened because now obviously, like you said, in everyday life, what you're doing, you're taking you're trying to plan a little 15 minutes of meditation and you're trying to flip and fit that in. Now I've been sitting in a space for how many hours just trying to work on that and being objective and being aware of every single sensation because, again, that element of the meditation was just to, again, when it comes to letting go of emotional attachments and anger and all these things, I find it so interesting because now I'm able to see and understand what these things are and the essence in order to break the shackles in all of this is doing nothing. But we live in a society where we get told, all right, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this, you should do that. Yeah, you know what, if you do this and if you write this and if you do that, and so now you've got people doing a whole lot of everything and getting everything. When in essence, what you want to be getting is nothing. Because it's like, for example, if you have an issue and, um, and let's say for example, you don't like when people come up to you, Harry, and say, you're an idiot. And that makes you get furious all of the time. You know what I mean? You carry like an emotional attachment towards that. Right? No one called me an idiot, you got mad. So I now call you an idiot. But this time you say, you know what? I know I'm not an idiot. So what am I reacting for? So in that essence of where you now do nothing, it doesn't affect you. Because now that emotional attachment is no longer there. So that's what happens in the meditation. You're flowing it up and down the energy. Things come up that you know, you've know possibly not dealt with or anger issues or whatnot. And when they come up and you feel it, it's just about being objective like third person. So it's like a, you see a fly, you're just being aware of the fly, you leave it. And it's the same with that. So now you're just aware of that feeling. Now that, that strong connection that you had to it begins to break away. So then you continue flowing your meditation, 
it will come back up along the line somewhere else. But again, you do the same thing. You just be aware of it. You do nothing. And the more you do that, the less the connection is towards it because it doesn't bother you no more. So that's why I find it interesting. The essence of doing everything, people are gaining everything when the real essence should just be nothing. But just to sum up that last part there. So when I eventually got back to my hotel, I was still feeling that knock in the right side of my head. And um, I remember putting on an interview with a, a music artist and there was no swearing or anything in there, but I was still getting this knock on my right side of my head. And it just, it just felt like a, a slight warning. And then I said, you know, let me put on um, this reggae artist, Chronics, because I know his music's all natural and he's always ever trying to promote positivity. I put that on and then the knocking went from sound like that to getting lighter. And then it went from my right side of my head to my left side. And it was more of a tingle, a pleasant tingling sensation. And I was like, wow, like when they talk about, you know, the earth consciousness and the vibration of the earth, I'm in tune, like I'm actually in tune, you know? So the experience taught me a lot. And I guess that's where, again, a lot more of the, you know, embracing the, the sensitivity side of things came from. And I think the more, the more I've done that, the more I don't really care about a lot of crap to be honest. Like when people say certain crap, it's just like whatever. And some people feel like I don't care. And it's not that I don't care. I'm just not really bothered when it comes to, you know, degrading people or anyone chatting crap about anyone. Don't need to be in that space it doesn't serve me it doesn't serve the mission don't serve the purpose so bob's your uncle see you later bob's your uncle i think it's amazing i genuinely think that as much as we've spoke a little bit about mindset a little bit about meditation and whatnot i feel that it would be very worth getting you on for an episode specifically on that and just leave your footballer label behind because i think you've got yeah. so much more to offer like me the podcast and my listeners, Nate. I think it's been mm. incredible. Um, we will start to wrap things up now, though, because I've had you on here a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can go all day, Giza, mate. 100%. This is why I think episode two would be um, very much worth our while. Mm-hmm. What I would ask without any labels for you is what's next for Nathan Smith? So at the moment, um, still building up certain things, but cool, I've got one Nathan Smith. You know, this is where it's about emotional understanding, emotional intelligence, you know, life skills that we've learned off the pitch to learn to apply on the pitch. You know, um, I'm going to be going into more schools. Um, I want to work with some football coaches as well in that aspect of helping them to understand a lot of their players. Because as I say, a lot of the, a lot of the techniques that managers are using are, are, are outdated and again we all have to be mindful of things again it's like with myself if i'm going into a school like times are changing like some people don't want to be identified as a he or she and these kind of things so now that's difficult for me because i grew up either it's either he or it's a she so now i'm going into an environment and i'm not intending to offend anybody but when you look at it this is how life has just changed. And I'll just quickly sum it up. Just like, I remember when I went to Glastonbury about a few months ago, I ended up talking to these two guys that they were just there. Somehow, I don't know how I've done it. I had them play music together. So it was just there, Glastonbury vibes in the niceness. Nice. And then we talk about, um, I think we was talking about something. And one of the guys turned around, white guy, and he was like, oh, Irish. He said, oh, um, something, he said about the colored lad and whatnot. So I knew he didn't mean anything offend, offensive by it. So... 
turned around to him and I just said to him, um, I said, listen, I know you didn't mean anything offensive by it. I know it because just by the conversation we've been having, I know you didn't mean anything by it. I said, but just be mindful that there could be a black man around when you say the word coloured and he's going to find it very disrespectful. And then he said, you know what? I appreciate you saying that to me. He said, it's just interesting because growing up as an Irish person, where I was from, we was taught not to say the word black because that was deemed offensive. So we'd use the term coloured. Now, right within that moment was a learning lesson for me because I said, okay, wow. So, because remember around that time as well, they used to have, you know, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. Do you know what I mean? Now, I was like, okay, so again, this is how society can manipulate things and, 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 and use things in a certain way to turn people against each other. So this man used to use the word colored to not offend people. Now, it's flipped over nowadays to now, if you use the word colored, you're offensive. Now, this man has been using this word, particularly for a period of time to not offend. Now you're trying to say to him, you can't use that no more, otherwise you're gonna offend. It's kind of difficult as we say, like, you know, you identify, you say, I'm a footballer, I'm a footballer, I'm a footballer. It's kind of, it's in your, in your, in your language, it's in your makeup. So again, it was a learning lesson for me to see, okay, like I've seen the play on words and it happens with so many different types of words. So again, you know, um, going into, actually, like I said, I want to work with some coaches to, again, help them understand that aspect of there because there are some good coaches, some good managers who generally want the best for players. But what I realize is that sometimes is that they don't have that middle bridge to connect with the players. And it was like, Darren Way, great manager, like great, great manager. And sometimes some players didn't understand the obsession he had with, you know, creating a great environment and winning, do you know what I mean? And sometimes people don't take the time out to understand that. So... I always was like that bridge to if people felt a certain way, I was making sure, yo, we ain't having no victim mindset in here. And it'd be like, listen, I know what the gaffer's like. Gaffer don't mean nothing by whatnot. You know, he just, just wants to win. You know, he wants to create that environment. He wants the best for us all. And it was able to neutralize a lot more situations because I understood him. But I also understood what, you know, the younger players wanted. So again, so that's one of the next things that's on the, on the list. And also I've got my health company, Vegan Food and Vibes. Um, that's where we rediscover healthier foods with fun and togetherness. And um, we've got a food show website. It's going to be coming out next week or so yeah, by next week. Um, and again, we've got some health products that we put together. You know, we've got one, I don't know if it's going to be recorded, but cool. We've got one blendy, which is, you know, just a natural juice, which is, you know, and people are saying, is it an energy drink? And this is where we talk about labels again. Now, when you understand what energy truly is, you know, it's just true hydration of your cell. That's what gives you energy. Then you realize that these artificial sweetening drinks like these isotonic sports drinks, Lucasades and Powerades and whatnot, all they do is they provide the illusion of energy. Why? Because they spike your blood sugar levels, you know, and then it makes you feel like you've got an energy boost when no, your blood's just rushing all over the place and then you have this massive come down. So, you know, um, created a drink blendy, um, got a tooth powder um, that we put together, you know, that gets rid of, um, you know, the gum, like the, the gum disease and bacteria that contributes towards toothache. So, you know, I had a toothache once upon a time and I put it together and it, and it works. So, you know, even a dentist, I gave it to him see what his views are on it and he gave it the thumbs up, detox tea. So again, like with that element there, 
I've just wanted to create an environment where people can come together, not in a, in a, in a non-judgmental way, because again, it's not about telling people to be vegan and you do this, you do that. At the end of the day, I've come from a space where I used to eat meat. So knowing that I used to eat meat, I understand the psychological battle that happens when it comes to eating certain things. So cool, no problem. But what we've got here is just an environment where we all just learn, rediscover things together. You try different things, all right, then cool. If you now decide you want to go on that journey, no problem. So, you know, there's going to be, um, we've been doing workshops in schools as well, where, you know, we have, we aim to teach young people about sugar, you know, the dangers of sugar, the importance of water, you know, we're doing water testing with like the chlorine levels and, um, you know, the acidic and showing what, you know, fizzy drinks do. Like people feel like fizzy water is good for you or certain other waters. But the tests that we've been doing and showing people in, in, in environments, it's like, wow. So the feedback from what we've been getting is, is being brilliant with that. So it's one Nathan Smith, it's vegan food and vibes. And obviously we're still playing football over at Enfield Town, which, you know, I'm still driven, you know, and... I feel like there's a, there's, a, there's a passion inside of me to show people that, you know, whilst living well, you can still continue and continue to play football. As long as, you know, you've got your focus, you know, you trust in yourself, you know I mean? You get the good set of people around you. Again, people say to you, oh, look at your age and whatnot. A man hit me up the other day and said, brother, are you not sick of football? And I know why he said that. But again, when you understand it for what it is, is that when man come to a certain level, Yes, the oval stuff and the Jamaica stuff, yeah, that will get you through a door, innit? Well, when the game starts, bruv, like, you're at the same level as these people, innit? So it's like being in a relationship. Yeah, your record might feel good in the beginning. The girl might be like, yeah, 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 cool. But how you're dealing with that girl in a relationship, that's all that matters, innit? Like, she don't really care about your history after that. And it's the same again in football. So a lot of players, they know they may drop down levels, they kind of have that underlying entitlement, like a manager should deal with me like this way and that way and this way. When in essence, if you're not performing, mate, you're not performing, simple as that. You know, so still driven, still motivated. And that's why we say one Nathan and the one is just a collectiveness more than anything. Amazing. That um pretty much wraps up your episode of the Grassroots Guy podcast, mate. I did warn you about what's coming next. We got 11 questions to finish. The 11 to finish quick fire questions. Um, the first question may test you because it oh, involves food. Me, I know that. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So uh, are you ready to start, Nathan? Yeah? Let's go, please. Cool. In three, two, one. Nathan, what is your Tesco meal deal choice? Tesco meal deal? I don't know. Well, I said it was a problem. <laughs> right, we'll restart. We'll restart. We'll restart. We'll restart. <laughs> you wouldn't even eat it, man, would you? <laughs> I only go to the fruit and veg, so there's no meal deals in there. Right. So, how do we ask the question? Nathan, what do you buy from Tesco's? All right, Nathan goes Tesco's. I'll go straight in. I'll buy some apples. I'll buy cucumbers. I might buy onions, um, chickpeas, um, some fruits. It could be strawberries, blueberries, some bananas. Yeah. Easy stuff. What's your best football in memory? My best football in memory. Um, it would definitely be. I like, it's tough because some, sometimes I think the the goal, the um, the the Chesterfield. But I feel for me it was when I scored the goal against Plymouth 
at Yeovil, that one where I just ran in and I tapped it, kind of tapped it in. And the reason why is that is just because, like I said, around that time there, mum wasn't too well. And being in that footballing environment and having to, you know, try and stay focused upon, you know, football itself, because, you know, you need to maintain your contract, but also trying to help your mum as well. You know, I feel like that was a, a proud moment for myself because, again, I could have cracked within that moment and I stayed up there. Amazing. Who is your sporting hero? Sporting hero? <sighs> yeah, we're going big run. We're going big run. R9. Uh, what is your favourite pair of football boots? Oi. Do you know what? Adidas F50s. I wore them a lot. I wore them. There's a picture of them when I'm in Jamaica. Um, in the Jamaican national team, the black with the luminous yellow kind of I remember. Piece. I had a pair. I had a pair. Yeah. What's is your that? Yeah. yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that one. Let me go that one. What's your uh, go-to music choice? Um, I'm a reggae man still, so reggae, reggae and dancehall. So yeah, I'll be, be on a reggae man. Amazing. Reggae uh, fav- favorite drink? Favorite drink is a blendy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hashtag, blendy. hashtag not an ad. Not an ad. Hashtag not an ad. Vegan <laughs> food and vibes. Not an ad. Website soon come next week. Not an ad. <laughs> Good man. Best leader, captain, or manager you've played with or been managed by? Oi, you know what? I can't pick one, you know. There's been some good leaders. Terry Skiverton, amazing. First leader that I did learn from differently. Terrell Forbes, brilliant. Learned so much. His learning technique was different, so I, it stuck with me. Elite Peltier, Sam Morsey. Whoa, I, can, I can go on, mate. Amazing. Gary Roberts, like it's all just everyone has their own types of lead. Like some are not, some don't really talk, but their actions were just, just up there. Yeah, incredible. Who is your most famous opposition? Um, yeah, there was Man United. Yeah, Man United the second time because that's when I think they had a bit more big dogs up in town. Uh, what advice would you like to have given yourself at eighteen? At 18, be honest with yourself more than anything. You know, no matter what anyone's opinions are, as long as your intentions aren't to hurt anybody, just be truthful to your spirit. Because if you don't honour your spirit, you're going to be falling down. Uh, best players you've played with? Oh, you see, baby, in there again. Sam Morsey. I like playing Armand and Angela because of what he gave. Terry Skiverton, Terrell Forbes, Gavin Tomlin, um, Andy Welsh, Gary Roberts. Oh, I can go on and on, bruv. Um, who else is there? Um, even playing alongside Rowan Ricketts one time or even Leroy Lee are just the little things that he Amazing. was teaching, man. Um, mind blank. There's a soul. You see what it is with football? That's and enough, me, though. Like, that is enough. I appreciate, like, what it is, is I appreciate everybody for what they do differently, what they offer differently. Do you know what I mean? Like, Terry Skiverton, I'll never forget the one time when he said to me, he said, um, I made a few mistakes and I kept doing it in games. And then after making a few mistakes, you sometimes feel like you need to do something big to make up for it. And he said to me, he said, listen, when you make a few mistakes, you see your next two or three passes, just keep them simple and get yourself back in check. That was one of the biggest and best advice I think I've ever received. Do you know what I mean? Because when you're getting things wrong in a game, and especially in a big game, and you know what happens, you get a few things wrong, you're the man and the gaffer. 
Stick it on the left back. Stick it on him. And them times that you don't want to be racing against no one like, you know, a Jason Punchin or uh, what's his name, Sean, that was at Leighton Norwich. Like, we used to have some races, Phil Robinson. Like, you don't want to be racing against them, man, that you're having a, a bad time. You know what I mean? So, yeah, like, that was a, a thing that always, even to this day, it will stay with me, you know? Amazing. And then finally, do you have any pre-match habits? Do you know what I like doing? I got this one from Pelts and we spoke about this the other day and I always put my shin pads on um, in the warm-up, for the warm-up. Oh. And I remember I done it because when I first went to, um, to Yeovil, I see him doing it. I'm thinking, yo, boy, my man's played for Liverpool. He's playing in the Champions League. I need to try and... <laughs> I'm trying to get... You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I remember doing that and when we spoke about it far enough the other day, he said, you know what it is? He said, he started doing it because as a player, you know, players always look over to the opposition whilst the warm-up's going on. And as a defender, sometimes you sometimes look at your winger or whatever. And I don't know why, but if you had on the vapors, you're like, oh my days, he's going to be running up and down. You know, I don't need this today. You know, Tricks, step overs, you yeah, know. All yeah, all of that. You just kind of judge them off the boots. Oh, this is going to be a long 45. And then he made a good point and he said, but obviously you got to remember those same players are looking over at us. So they see a defender with his shin pads on from the beginning. Oh, flipping it. My man's busy, bro. Like he's going to be on it, bro. Like he's going to look like he's... And again, it's all of that, that mind perception kind of thing that can start triggering us. So that's one thing I always do. And I always, um, I always wrap my arm as well. I do my wrists. And then my latest one is... Yeah, I bring out a blending with me. I've got to make sure. Hashtag not an ad. A hashtag not an ad. I've got it all the time when I'm walking out in the beginning. I'm not even trying to drink it. i just got to make sure it says everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> Old marketing. Superb, mate. Honestly, Nathan Smith, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast this evening. How have you found your experience on the podcast? No, it's been, it's been a great experience. Um, obviously, I've had a long day myself, been up from five, went to Wickham, a full day of workshop, literally get back in and get back in bang on time for the interview. And I just want to say credit to you because when it comes to doing interviews with people, some people just make it flipping. It's just very robotic and it can be very boring. And again, this doesn't seem like an interview. It just seemed like me and Amanda having a little catch up. So... That's a skill that you've obviously crafted somehow, some way, and I and I respect that, you know. So, you know, some of it may have gone off script, but you flowed with it. You know what I mean? And sometimes I always say it's always it's sometimes good to go off script if you can dig the right kind of questions. And I see you doing little things outside, you know, going to some seminars and them things there, and I respect it. You know what I mean? Them things there, they go a long way with me. You know what I mean? I, I respect that highly. Nathan, I appreciate your words. Um, thank you very much. So if people want to come and find you to find your vegan food and vibes and stuff, where can they find you? So cool. Vegan food and vibes. You can find it on Instagram. Um, like I said, website will be up next week. Um, vegan food and vibes is spelled V E um, sorry, V E G A N N for the and so V A V E G A N N V I B E S vibes. Um, yeah, vegan food and vibes again.com online, and then obviously, you've got my main page is one Nathan Smith, so it's all letters O N E N A T H A N 
S-M-I-T-H. And yeah, so one Nathan Smith on the Instagram and one Nathan Smith on well one Nathan Smith.com on um on the internet. On the interweb. Perfect. On the interweb. On the interwebby. Perfect. That does wrap up episode 33 of the Grassroots Guy podcast with today's guest, Nathan well. Smith. 33. There you okay. go. Okay. Numerology, 33. Nikola Tesla. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Um, we've wrapped things up here. If you love today's episode, uh, I certainly have enjoyed recording it. Please drop, a drop, please drop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to helping me out. And you can find me on Instagram at the Grassroots Guy, as well as on Twitter and Facebook. You know that you can catch me here most Fridays with a new episode. I'll speak to you all soon. Nathan, say cheerio. Big up. Don't know. <laughs> Big up yourself. Harry. Harry's the M-A-N. And we linked up. So yeah, man, stay tuned in. Stay listening. You're going to have more goodness from the boy, Harry. Thank you very much. Speak to you all soon.